Hello everybody, welcome to a new episode of the Decenter. I'm your host Ricardo Lopes and today I'm joined by Dr. Christopher Cavanagh. He is an Associate Professor in the College of Contemporary Psychology at Rikyu University and a researcher in Cognitive Anthropology at the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at the University of Oxford. Currently, he is based in Japan, where he conducts research in collaboration with Masaki Yuki's Culture, Social Ecology and Psychology Lab in Hokkaido University. His research interests include East Asian studies, ritual behavior, and the bonding effects of shared dysphoria. And those are some of the topics that we're going to cover today. And he's also co-host of the Decoding the Gurus podcast, which I love, by the way. So, Dr. Kavanagh, thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Oh, thank you, Ricardo. And good job with all the introduction details. It's better remembered <laughs> than me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sure, sure. Okay, so we're going to focus a lot on religion today. And I mean, this is something that I've already discussed with other people on my show, particularly Pascal Boyer. But uh, how should we define religion from a sort of anthropological, psychological perspective? Because uh, looking across cultures, it seems that religion is a phenomenon that manifests in many different ways, right? Yes, there's a perennial debate uh, with Pascal on one particular side about whether we should even use the, the category religion right, because of the diversity involved with it. And my stance on it, it maybe is slightly uncommon for anthropologists who tend to be very skeptical of the category. Um, I, I'm in line with the people who argue for a kind of neo-Tylorian one. E.B. Tyler, uh, a long time ago, advanced a theory that, uh, or a definition that related to the role played by supernatural agents or beings in defining religion. And I know that's not incredibly fashionable, but in my experience, the the role played by supernatural beings of some description or another is a kind of core feature of most religious systems. And and in general, I'm okay with categories that are based on family resemblance type traits. So it's it's perfectly understandable for me that, you know, there are a bunch of traits associated with the thing that we called religion, but you don't find it in every manifestation of that. And I, I tend to think two core components of it are the belief in culturally postulated supernatural beings and then uh, ritual behaviors directed at those beings or, or supernatural systems. So, so although these debates never end, I'm I'm fine with using that category to talk to that general group of things. I think it's a meaningful uh, category. Mm -hmm. Sure. Uh, but from a psychological perspective, is there a set of uh, cognitive mechanisms that go associated with religion like for example i know that in the cognitive science of religion people talk a lot about the hyperactive agency detection device and then there are people that talk about for example folk biology folk physics folk psychology and stuff like that yeah so i think it depends it kind of depends what you're focusing on in terms of religion and re religiosity because the intuitive biases say towards detecting agents or towards inferring agency from ambiguous events do not necessarily need lead themselves towards like religious institutions right or the myself and john jong kind of argued in a paper uh, that they instead would lead people towards being born idolaters rather than uh, like born religious people, right? Uh, uh, over interpreting agency. But the, 
sorry, I lost my train of thought. But as soon as I thought about that, what what was the original question? Just to remind uh, myself. The original question is if there is a set of cognitive mechanisms that we could say are at the basis of religious thinking and religious phenomena. Yes. So the I think the issue about religious institutions and their which which is often what people are talking about when they discuss religions you know christianity or buddhism or hinduism or these kind of larger superstructures that there isn't necessarily enough in just individual cognitive biases to explain the the transmission and persistence of specific doctrines and dogma so I, I think we need more than the individual intuitive biases to explain religious systems. And I know that some people have argued otherwise, that like most of religious content is explained by the biases, but I, I think the, it has to be a kind of interaction between more top-down cultural systems and, and individual biases that might lean towards supernatural or religious type uh, beliefs mm -hmm. right but because religion is uh, I think uh, a universal a human universal I mean I, I think that we find religion in all sorts of societies can we say that it's a natural phenomenon I'm asking because since it has that sort of a big cultural ingredient to it can we say that it's a natural phenomenon or not yeah i i mean i would say that in supernatural beliefs are there's no society that i'm aware of that doesn't have to some degree uh supernatural beliefs but religious institutions and the the kind of systems of systemized religious belief is is not as common right and and tends to be so i think there's an issue when people conflate those those two things that you 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 so you're probably on safe ground to say that religious beliefs is a universal and somewhat natural state for our species but the existence of religions and in an institutional form is not and is a more recent development and yeah so the this is probably an argument in kind of pascal and others box that the fact that this one word is used to refer to two quite distinctive things is is part of you know what causes confusion but um but yeah so so one is i could i think there's a good case for it being a universal uh, of human societies, and the other is more restricted, mm -hmm. but, but often then, interpreted as a human universal. But uh, you know that tends to be implying that uh, implying a model of, that relates to Christianity to societies where it doesn't uh, necessarily apply. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think you raised a very important question there. I mean, th there's also an important difference even in societies where religion is institutionalized between what, what religion is as a doctrine and how common people, let's say, practice religion, right? Yes, definitely. And this is like a distinction that anthropologists have uh, spent a lot of time kind of focusing on the difference between lay beliefs and kind of elite doctrines and and cognitive science of religion also has uh, attempted to grapple that with like theological correctness research and I I think the distinction is important but but also the point that you mentioned or hinted at that individual religious traditions like say Christianity have very very different manifestations between societies or between sects within society so that's that's why i think there's legitimacy to the criticisms that surround you know uh discourse on religion that is too too sweet generous or or taking religion religious systems to be very very concrete and bounded phenomenon but um, but I think if you don't do that, you're, you're safe 
using the word. It's still meaningful to talk about Buddhism, even though there's a vast array of different sects of Buddhism, often with like contradicting doctrines. Yeah, maybe culturally it would be something like a language, right? We have uh, a language that we we say, for example, people speak English, but I mean, if you look at English spoken in Britain, in the US, in Australia, and even uh, in the same country across different regions, I mean, it's not exactly the same language, right? I think we're, we're doing a good job of illustrating that with our uh, combined accents. So yes, the 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 kind of diversity in in accents and dialects is a really good illustration of the the kind of same processes but it's still meaningful to talk about language families and that uh, kind of thing broader system so yeah yeah so and what's the difference between orthopraxic and orthodoxic religions. I mean, th those are two terms that perhaps are a bit complicated for people who are not familiar with this literature, but could you explain them? Yeah, I, I think there's a really crucial distinction because I think that people in uh, Western societies, at least in the kind of North America and Western Europe, tend to be familiar with orthodoxic religion, which is religion focused on kind of like the name suggests, doctrines and belief and kind of the image that people have of Christianity or Islam or the kind of any of the Abrahamic monotheistic beliefs fit well with the unorthodoxic religion. So belief is important, doctrines are important, um, uh, whereas orthopraxic religion which is also extremely common around the world, but tends to be less emphasized because it isn't so popular in Western populations, puts a much smaller emphasis on belief and a much greater emphasis on uh, practices, particularly ritual performances. So the important thing is not necessarily adhering to specific doctrines or, you know, stating a creed of belief, but it's in doing what you're supposed to do at the right time or in the right place. And uh, from my own background, I was raised Catholic in, in Ireland. So Catholicism has a lot of orthopraxic elements, which, you know, the, that people, even when back to when the mass was said in Latin and people, you know, didn't, didn't understand Latin. So the performance uh, was more, was to some extent emphasized over the the understanding all of the doctrinal elements but but i think if you're coming from a protestant background that sometimes orthopraxic traditions seem quite alien um and and the country that i'm based in in japan is a really good example because it's a country with in often presented as like highly atheist and secular but has a lot of ritualized activity and uh temp you know hundreds of thousands of temples and shrines across the society so it's an odd it, it only seems i think non-religious if you're coming at it from an orthodoxic view of religion if you're just focused on practices and, and ritual participation it's it's quite rich uh, in terms of the religion in Japan. Mm -hmm. Is it relevant for us to talk here about uh, ritual modes theory? I mean, and the distinction between the sort of doctrinal versus imagistic rituals? Yes, so that doesn't map exactly onto the uh, orthodox and orthopraxic distinction, but but it, it is related, at least in the sense that, that so M ritual modes theory, which is Harvey Whitehouse's theory, my old supervisor and uh, current boss on the research project I work on, he, he made a strong distinction between rituals which are repeated frequently and are low arousal, which the prototypical example would be a Christian mass, um, and rituals which are 
highly arousing, dramatic, and rarely performed, um, and and tend to engender reflection, which he called imagistic rituals. So it is the case that doctrinal rituals are more associated with like orthodoxic ritual traditions. Um, but say take the case of Japan, for example, where you don't have people engaging in regular practices uh, usually like attending services for weekly services or that kind of thing. It's true, but you do have a lot of, of rituals which are performed fairly often that are not so um, that are not focused around religious institutions like people performing uh, rites for the dead or uh, or or simple kind of ritual ceremonies at uh, when they visit specific locations. So it, I think it's an important, the modes theory is carving out these kind of two groups of relig rituals, which are important uh, categories, I think, but not necessarily the same distinctions that are important when it comes to the, the two types of uh, religions or religious mm -hmm. traditions. Right. Uh, actually, it's probably more accurate to say that those orthodox and orthopraxic tend to be orientations in the society that rather than just about the religious systems, you know, the societies themselves are more focused towards uh, the importance placed on practice over belief. Mm -hmm. And how do you go about studying rituals? I mean, do you do field experiments? Do you study them in a lab setting? Because I would imagine that, I mean, perhaps uh, in a field uh, experiment, you would have, uh, I mean, it would be a more natural phenomenon, but with less control over it. But on the other end, on the lab, you would have the opposite. Exactly. So I think a combination of the two is the ideal. Although, you know, not everybody can do everything, but I think having the ecological validity of actually going to ritual events where people tend to be invested in the rituals and the symbols and, you know, and often have their in lifetime identities associated with the performance. Whereas you don't get that from uh, lab rituals, uh, especially artificially created ones and groups that you've, you know, just met that day. Um, so, but in my own research, I've done uh, artificial ritual experiments in the lab where we do get people to come in and perform uh, novel rituals that they've just learned about that day with strangers. And I've done field work where we've gone to ritual events and tried to collect data during firewalking festivals or cold water festivals. And, and it is inevitably much more messy when you're collecting data out in the field. But I, my personal position, and this is probably related to my anthropological background, is that if you are only doing experiments in the lab that you wouldn't have I think you miss something about what the actual phenomenon you're investigating is and that it can mean that, you know, when people try to create very controlled experiments in the lab, that they they end up controlling everything to the extent that the phenomenon doesn't resemble very much at all the the natural, you know, ritual phenomenon. And, and yet people are drawing large inferences from, you know, quite artificial lab settings. So I, I think a combination of them both and ideally lab experiments that do their best to, you know, keep some semblance of ecological validity are desirable. Um, but, but it's also the case that if you can find, uh, if you can find significant results, and I don't mean statistically significant, you know, I mean, if you can find results that are meaningful from controlled lab settings uh i think that is a good signal that there's a robust effect because because of how artificial the settings tend to be so there there's definitely room for experiments and uh and hopefully more room for people doing 
field experiments because even though everybody can get agrees they're important, they're still relatively rare. <laughs> yeah, and when you study, for example, high arousal rituals, what are the sorts of insights you can get from them uh, about religion and how people practice religion more broadly? Because, I mean, it's not the case that uh, we have those kinds of rituals across all religions, I guess, or that they are that common? Well, so I think the they it, it sort of depends, right? Because there are traditions like uh, there are evangelical Christian traditions like in the US, for example, that do, you know, snake handling and and various things which seem quite extreme. But it is true that those don't tend to be, you know, the the mainstream dominant versions. The the dominant versions tend to be like slightly uh, more restrained uh, versions, I think, for obvious reasons. But the uh, why it's important to look at these rarer high arousal events, I think there's there's two things that make it important. One is that these kind of rituals create an evolutionary and and even if set inside the evolutionary, just psychological puzzle of why are people engaging in these actions which are physically unpleasant or psychologically uh, terrifying or, or or harmful and seem harmful you know physically uh, and yet they're willing to in, engage in them often with a smile on their face so that's an interesting puzzle of like what's there's a clear cost so what's the benefit and the second thing which makes them important is Despite the fact that you're right, it's certainly easier to look around the world now and to find doctrinal rituals in, in most, uh, at least especially in Western societies. But uh, these high arousal imagistic rituals are still very common across societies and across history. And they, they pop up in a whole lot of contexts like military events, or sports clubs and not just in religious settings. So I think it's important and, and also seem to have been more important probably historically uh, than, than is the current uh, in the contemporary setting. So I think understanding the psychology involved is, is important because of their uh, cultural recurrence and not their dominance, but their perseverance. Uh, even even in societies like where, for example, hazing is outlawed and uh, is illegal in lots of societies, uh, but still persists as a practice. And I think it's a good question to ask why. Right. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this question makes sense, but could it be the case that at least uh, some of these rituals would function as credibility enhancing displays? Yes, so I, I definitely, I, I think in, when it comes to ritual, research on ritual, there's a ton of, there's a, we're kind of theory heavy with explanations. And I, I think it's wrong to view it that, you know, there has to be one, you know, one ring to rule them all. There, there likely is multiple explanations as is often the case with complex phenomena but credibility enhancing displays uh kind of joe henrik's uh, framing i think is is definitely a big part of the story that incurring costs for uh, specifically with rituals associated with group identities uh shows a hard to fake signal of commitment to the group but uh but there are instances where those kind of explanations become harder when, for example, people are engaged in ascetic practices in private um, uh, and and don't signal to the the broader group about them or this kind of thing. But 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 I think that those are much rarer than uh, you know people engaging in ascetic practices and everybody is aware of it. So, so costly signaling is, I think, a big part of the story when it comes to uh, recouping the cost of costly rituals. 
Mm-hmm. And talking about high arousal rituals, what are dysphoric rituals? So the dysphoric rituals, tip, put simply, are unpleasant rituals. So this is often referring to painful or psychologically uncomfortable rituals. Essentially, in in psychological terms, any ritual which is generating negative uh, effect and negative arousal. Now, it gets a it gets a little bit more complicated, I think, because often a ritual which objectively is painful or unpleasant, like uh, walking through fire, for example, you know, most humans don't enjoy that activity. Um, Subjectively, people often do report enjoying it or senses of euphoria involved with, you know, highly dysphoric practices. So I think it's important when looking at this rituals, which are classified as dysphoric, to separate out the subjective personal experience from the objective features of the ritual. Um, but, but yeah, so the, uh, any, anything unpleasant and painful and uh, traumatic falls under dysphoric rituals. Mm-hmm. And do they produce any important social effects or not? Yes, so uh, at least in the theoretical framework, I work in and argue for, I think they are undergoing dysphoric rituals or traumatic experiences that other people have experienced or or experienced with you is um, is a potent means for bonding with other people. And I think even, you know, outside of ritual settings, often the, when you talk, when people are friends, for example, or, or members of a sports team or, or whatever the case may be, the thing which they often remember is the times where they had some adversity or struggle that they went through together rather than the day-to-day events that might actually be, you know, the building blocks of the friendship and the relationship. There are often these uh, highly memorable events associated with trauma or suffering. And, and people, when they share those experiences, feel very connected to the others they went through it. So I think dysphoric rituals are uh, kind of harnessing those broader effects, uh, bonding effects that come from sharing unpleasant experiences. So I think there's a definite uh, bonding effect from going through them. And there's there's also the possibility that uh, I... Uh, some some like Brock Bastian, for example, has suggested that when you experience, you know, pain, uh, the, there's an in instinctive reaction to seek out others to try and uh, form alliances or to overcome the pain. Right. So that it might lead to a heightened sociality if you're undergoing an experience which is unpleasant as you look for, you know, ways to un- reduce it um, and given that we're highly social animals we we look for solutions in sociality mm-hmm. and this social bonding does it have anything to do with the phenomenon of identity fusion yes so this this i think is uh, maybe more con controversial or uh, at least currently requiring more data that whether identity fusion, which is a specific kind of group bonding where personal and group identities are are somewhat overlapping and interconnected. Um, and this is this has been theorized particularly by Harvey Whitehouse and uh, and Bill Swan to to be generated effectively from dysphoric rituals in a way that is not true of other types of rituals. And I definitely think that high arousal in ritual experiences, which become part of autobiographical uh, identity, are a rich vein for people who who become highly connected to a group and identity fusion is a specific type of 
you know, strong bond with a group. So I definitely think it's a potent source of uh, that kind of group bonding. I'm not as convinced that it's the only type of bond that can be generated from those experiences. I think the social identity theory kind of group identification also comes with it. But but yeah, but this is an area where there's kind of ongoing research and attempts to distinguish how tied it is to identity fusion specifically. Um, And yeah, I think it's an area that needs like more data, uh, but uh, but it's an interesting research question. Mm-hmm. So in the cognitive science of religion, when it comes to trying to understand how religious ideas dis- disseminate among people, uh, uh, researchers talk a lot about minimally counterintuitive ideas. But I mean, is the research, the evidence, behind uh, these solid or not are really minimally counterintuitive ideas the ones that spread the easiest yeah i have a long overdue review publication of the (laughs) literature from uh, the mci research and my my kind of takeaway event uh, opinion of the research literature was that a lot depended so one as has been remarked by others the the definition of mci and what counts as a minimally counterintuitive agent or object has been operationalized differently by different researchers and that's a big problem when it comes to comparing uh, results and is in particular the category of what counts as bizarre rather than, you know, uh, counterintuitive is supposed to be violating core ontological assumptions. And there's a question, you know, what those core ontological assumptions are. So the category of bizarre has proven particularly slippy. But when it comes to how well established they are, uh, the effect is, the experimental evidence for increased recall, I think, is is mixed and a lot depends on the type of methodology that is applied. So uh, whether you're using, you know, lists, word lists or whether you're using concepts embedded in stories uh, produces very different chances of getting positive results. But, but where I would think that there is much less controversy is that minimally counterintuitive agents uh, and are heavily represented in religious material and uh, religious iconography and also in successful uh, cultural manifestations like folk tales and these kind of things as well. Now, people often point in, in contradiction to that, that there are uh, figures within religious traditions who are extremely counterintuitive they have many properties which which you know that if you look at the theologically correct description of the christian god he's extremely uh, counterintuitive omnipotent and omniscient and omnipotent and so on but but i agree with the researchers who say that in general they are not presented in having all those abilities at once in most of the stories, popular stories about them, they so even if there is a doctrinal version which is highly counterintuitive and requires, you know, uh, is very hard to parse, I think that's not the version that most people hold in their heads in individual stories. And secondly, I agree with uh, Justin Barrett and other people who have pointed out that the maintenance of those highly counterintuitive and complex belief structures require religious institutions devoted to kind of passing on the the those doctrines so i don't think mci are by any means the whole story when it comes to supernatural beings or uh, or religion in general but i think they are a very useful concept for uh, pointing out a category of uh, types of 
supernatural beings and 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 other counterintuitive creatures and uh, and agents that are that are common and recurrent cross culturally. Um, so like, I think it's a useful concept, but I wouldn't lean too heavily on its like explanatory power to explain all of religion. Mm -hmm. Right. And does relational mobility as a theoretical framework give us any new insights into religiosity and religious behavior? Yeah, so I know you've uh, talked to Joanna Shug be yeah. before previously about relational mobility. And uh, in case anyone doesn't know, that's the, uh, the kind of the ability to form new partnerships or dissolve old partnerships or relationships within a society. So social mobility, everybody knows, move up and down classes, but relational mobility is more about interpersonal relationships and some societies that's very easy to do in Latin, South America or uh, or North America for that matter. But in other societies, the Middle East and Japan, it's uh, relational mobility tends to be very low. It's hard to make friends. It's hard to uh, dissolve dissatisfactory relationships. And the overlap with that with uh, religion, I think, is an interesting area that hasn't been fully tapped yet because I think there is a potential overlap in that the ritual or religious traditions that are based on face-to-face uh, -face ritual performances of small groups and kind of relational bonds with people might be particularly um, efficacious at generating low relational mobility uh, context because the the people that are involved in the rituals are you know limited and the uh, identity markers are quite clear or it may be the case that low mobility societies are not good context for doctrinal religions um, to to flourish in so I I would be interested to see more work done on the the kind of historical, patterns of relational mobility and the spread of doctrinal religions. That's that's an area that Masaki Yuki and uh, Harvey Whitehouse and some of the people at Seishat have been interested in exploring. But at the minute, it remains a speculative set of hypotheses rather than a, you know, empirically demonstrated uh, relationship. Mm -hmm. And does, do disciplines like the cognitive science of religion in any way defeat protheistic arguments? Because since we are trying here to explain uh, religion from a naturalist scientific perspective, I mean, would, does science answer those sorts of questions? I don't think so, at least not necessarily. I mean, I think that people can and do take implications from findings about, you know, the evolutionary history uh, of religions and uh, looking at how religion has developed from, from an evolutionary perspective. Um, but there, I don't think in that perspective or in the cognitive science of religion in general, that there is any effort to to focus on the you know whether supernatural beings exist or the influence that they have or their likelihood. It what's more important is people believe in them and act on those beliefs, or people perform rituals directed towards them. So the issue of their ontological status is you know it, it does fit the kind of Noma model of Gould, right? That they're, they're, although I think it's often over applied, it is the case in, in this circumstance that uh, CSR researchers are not that interested in whether God actually exists. Um, but that said, I think it it is not true to say that there's no necessary uh, implication that people could draw because you know if somebody details how religious beliefs can develop from intuitive 
psychological dispositions and through evolutionary uh, dynamics uh, with groups, it inevitably is the case that there's a, you know, there is an account of the religions that exist in the world there, which, which is rivals the, or which stands in distinction to the, um, the theological version, right? That, that they are revealing the truth about supernatural beings that exist. And so I think in that respect, it, it is fair to say it at least provides a competing explanation for the existence and popularity of religions other than they are you know telling the truth about uh, the one or multiple chosen gods mm -hmm. uh, and do you study belief and non-belief in japan so is japan a particularly interesting uh, country where uh, to study uh, religious and non-religious phenomenon because for example many people point to japan as an atheistic society but is that really the case yeah so the, i i think japan is very interesting for the uh, related to reason that the orthopraxic context that we discussed earlier that there there is in general, if you ask people in Japan about the importance of religion or religious beliefs, you will get very, or, or even do surveys of that, you will tend to get very low levels of response. And people do not tend to identify, of course, there's exceptions, but generally speaking, people don't tend to identify with specific religious uh, traditions strongly. And there's lots of uh, anecdotes that you can give to that that for example people often don't know which buddhist sect they believe that they belong to until they're arranging funerals for family members um that in houses there are uh, tr kind of traditional houses there's shinto altars and uh, buddhist uh, and uh, altars as well for the deceased so butsudans and kamidanas in the same house and these are in some respects, distinctive religious systems, at least yeah, if you go far back uh, enough historically. But the, I think focusing purely on the issue of how much people endorse specific religious identities or or set of theological religious beliefs is that mistake that I previously discussed of thinking that religion is purely about beliefs and doctrines and not about uh, practices and kind of broader cultural symbolism and uh, these kind of things. So in, in that respect, when you do surveys in Japan, uh, as is common in most even highly secular societies, when you ask about broader supernatural beliefs, you tend to find that a lot of people do have um, beliefs in, you know, spirits and afterlives and ancestors. And if you also word questions such to ask, not were they endorsing, for example, a Christian creator God, right? If you're asking instead uh, about the the importance of having uh, like uh, um um a mindset that respects the spiritual or these kind of, uh, you know, depends on how you word things. You can actually get very high levels of response to in Japan where people are saying that there, there are supernatural beings or there is an importance to the uh, veneration of the, you know, spirits of ancestors. So I think it's mis it's somewhat misleading to view Japan as like a country of secular atheists and and this is never more clear than when like you if you visit you know i like there's very there's a, a shopping center that i go to near my house where uh, at the weekends often with my family and there's a shrine it's a new building but there's a there's a shrine outside of it and that's completely normal in Japan that you would build, uh, there would be a shrine, you know, inserted in amongst uh, uh, commercial buildings or that there are 
there are temples nestled in in the middle of the city and the persistence so although many of the there is decline in the amount of temples and shrines they're still extremely common and you know anybody a visitor to japan will not find it hard to find shrines and temples to visit and and that includes lots of little informal roadside shrines or you know not just a big grand temple so i i'm high often skeptical of anybody who would say that japan is you know a non-religious society but if you focus purely on the issue of do people endorse a creator god and do they regularly attend religious services no but that's not all that uh, i think is entailed when or should be entailed when people talk about religion uh, i think that question is more like is there western uh western institutional religion in japan and then the answer is no uh, but that if if that's what people are talking about right, the answer is no but i don't think that's what we should be talking about when we're talking about religion but these supernatural beliefs that you mentioned, are they also held by people who self-identify as atheists? Uh, so there's not that much research on that in Japan specifically because atheist like doesn't tend to be a popular identity because of the fact that uh, there isn't a dominant religious system which demands you know uh, ad like exclusive adherence. So in general, people participate in Buddhist Shint, like it's normal, for example, when your children are born to take them to Shinto uh, shrines for blessings. Then when you marry, you might have a Christian ceremony. And when you die, you would, may have a Buddhist funeral. That would be normal. And there's no, there's very few people that see any, you know, contradiction in that. So there's a, a kind of uh, non-exclusive nature to religious systems in Japan. At, at least at the level of the the people involved, the systems themselves might, you know, in some sense prefer if people uh, dabbled less. But the um, so the, sorry, why was I telling you that? I I lost my track again. Late night here, so <laughs> yeah, no problem. Uh, I mean, you, you were basically mentioning the fact that in Japan, people. I mean, adhere to practices from different religions, and they don't find that contradictory. What, what was your What was your original question? Yeah, yeah my original question was uh, if these supernatural beliefs that you mentioned uh, do they also occur in people that self-identify as atheists? Oh yes, sorry. Uh, so, what I wanted to say with that was that the so the the cultural category of like non-believer is is not that salient because belief is not a a important category like religious belief is not that much of an important cultural category so the, a, if you ask people you know to self-identify as atheist it tends to be a very small uh, set of people who will self-identify as that and but but we uh, john landman has research that's been ongoing um in in japan and a whole bunch of different countries with his unbelief project and i don't want to butcher what they find but i believe they they did find in japan that although the levels of you know uh, supernatural beliefs or uh, were lower amongst uh, people who self-identify as atheists they were certainly not you know completely flatlined at, at zero so they they and i think that's a pattern that they find consistent across societies that including in societies where atheism is a category but but specifically in japan that non-belief and atheism was not i'm if i'm remembering correctly that there there was still a significant level of uh, supernatural belief though relatively diminished you know to the general population mm -hmm. right so uh, let me just ask you about one last topic uh, and now not related to religion but let's talk a little bit about weird psychology so mm. Uh, one of the things that people tend to associate with westerners is the fact that we are individualistic or tend to be individualistic but is it the case that 
we are really strongly individualistic or are there other cultures that we know about that where people are more individualistic than we are? Yeah, so I this relates to work uh, that Masaki Yuki has done and I've written on with him about how how useful it is to focus on the individualistic and collectivist distinction and how meaningful and I, I think an important point in that in that uh, research literature and Masaki's work in particular is to emphasize that individualistic societies which are often typified by the western societies the us and north america and western europe uh individualist is a bit of a misnomer because it gives the impression that people are in independent and uh, kind of operating as isolated units but as anybody knows who spends you know more than a week in the west group identities are extremely important political identities sport team identities your school class identity or your class your social class identity these are all the group identities which have significant uh, meaning even in an individualistic context so in some sense it's it's an unfortunate wording that has been chosen because there definitely are distinctions between collectivist and individualist societies but it's I think it's more in the way that they interact with groups than whether they focus on groups um, as an important source of identity and uh, important thing to be concerned about so the the relationships with groups and group members differ but but not not the importance of groups uh, in in individualist or collectivist societies. Your question about whether there are societies which are more individualistic than the the Western societies. So my I'm sure there are, and I'm sure there are anthropologists who would like scream out a long list of them. But I I I think in general societies which are uh, you know, which meet all the criteria of the weird category, do tend to have a clear association with what's called individualism. So I, I think they are, if not at the top, they're certainly near the top of uh, societies on that kind of rating. Mm -hmm. And when you say, and perhaps this will be my final question, when you say, for example, that when we think about how people establish relationships uh, with people from the same group and how they look at other groups. So in terms of thinking about uh, people being more individualistic or collectivistic, should we also take into account perhaps the sort of dynamics that uh, result from the interactions they have with people from their own group versus how they deal with uh, out groups? Yes, so I think this is part of the reason that the collectivist uh, label can be misleading, uh, that it gives the impression, just by the simple description, that people kind of feed their individual being into collective groups, right? And that in societies that are collectivist, you would imagine that the collective is what matters over the individual. But when you take, in particular, East Asian societies, and Japan's the one I'm most familiar with, so I'll use it as the uh, prototypical example. Uh, while group settings are important, just as they are in many other uh, cultures, the within those group settings it is completely false that people dissolve their group or dissolve their personal identity into a group on the contrary people are extremely aware of their individual position in a group and their relationships with others in the group and uh, you know east asian languages japanese being no exception has a lot of hierarchical differences depending on the status between the person that's talking and the, uh, the relative status of the people with the verbs changing and 
uh, and polite what, what levels of politeness used you know uh, ch changing quite substantially so the I think that's why part of the reason and part of the reason Masaki has objected in the past to research that presents collectivism as being about uh, feeding into a group and he's spoken about the existence of intra-group collectivism meaning that people in societies that are labeled collectivist it may not be that they are feeding into groups or rather that they are more interested in the intra-group dynamics than intergroup comparisons or focusing on outgroups. So uh, this this is an important distinction which he makes between those who are a more intergroup collectivist or focused on you know joining a group, and and that's more the traditional image of uh, kind of subsuming your personal identity into a group, not differentiating between members, and then you know valuing your status between your group identity and other existing group identities and i think that the, there's no culture where there are there's no such dynamics where people don't make intergroup comparisons and that intergroup dynamics don't play a role and that there isn't individual agency so i think the difference between cultures and societies is more in the degrees of emphasis placed on different uh, parts of that spectrum and and in countries like Japan, the intergroup focus is is very clear and and very important uh, for people. Uh, so so yeah, I'm I'm not sure that is a great answer for your question, but uh, I think it touches at least on the point you asked. Mm -hmm. Right. Okay. So just before we go, where can people find you on the internet? Uh, so I'm available in all the usual places with Google Scholar and uh, the you know the academic websites, and then I have my uh, I I'm on Twitter at c underscore Kavna, um, and as you mentioned, the decoding the gurus podcast uh, is findable via Google, and I can hear. A small baby trying to break into the room so sorry about that yeah no problem no problem so i will be leaving links to all of that in the description box of the interview and again as i said i really love the podcast so i'm looking forward to new episodes and dr kevin thank you a lot for taking the time to come on the show yes uh thank you very much and uh sorry for the unannounced visitor but that's the perils of recording at home <laughs> hello everybody thank you for watching this interview until the end i've been doing this channel for three years now and it is thanks to people like you who support the show that it's been running for so long. And so I would like to ask you to please visit my Patreon page and consider making a pledge there. Any amount, even just $1 would already be a great help. And otherwise, and if you like what I'm doing, please share it, leave a like and hit the subscription button. I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and supporters, Karen Litzke, and Blanchett, Peroga Larsen, Logorero, Francis Ford, Hans Frederick Sunder, Ricardo Vladimiro, Greg Healy, Adam Castle, Olaf Alec, Jonathan V. Salanian, Kata, Jacob Klinkby, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollacy, Henry Kalenius, John Connors, Paulina Barron, Philip Force Connolly, Jerry Mueller, Herbert Gintis, Rutger Voss, Bo Weingart, Rebecca Neuberger Goldstein, Dan Demetri, Robert Windegger, Rui Inácio, Arthur Coe, Zoop, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Susan Pinker, Thomas Trumbull, Bernardo Seixas, Pablo Santurbano, Simon Columbus, Jorge Spinha, Phil Cavana, Corey Clark, Mark Blythe, Roberto Inguanzo, Michael Stormer, Eric Neumann, Samuel Andreev, Tiago Nunes, Bernard Hugni, Alexander Dunbauer, Omari Hickson, Felicia Stevens, Fergal Cusson, Evan Bodrenko, Al Herzog, Nuno Machado, Don Ross, João Alves da Silva, Jonathan Leibrand, Oslem Bullut, Nathan Nguyen, Stanton T, 
Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, J.W., João Eira, Tom Hummel, David Sloan Wilson, Yasila Deza Araújo, Eden Solon, Roman Roach, Dmitry Grigoriev, Diego Londonio Correa, Tom Roth, Yannick Punter, Adana Rusmani, Charlotte Bliss, my producers, Isar Weber, Jim Frank, Lucas Stafiniak, Ilian Gilligan, Sérgio Quadriano, Luis Caetano, Matthew Lavender, Tom Vanegdam, Curtis Dixon, João Linhares, Benedict Mueller, Vega Gidi, Sardis France, and Niruban Balachandran, and my executive producers, Michel Rugieski, Rosie, and James Pratt. Thank you for all.